Why is it that some brands explode with exponential viral growth and others don't? Why do household names die while others continue to reinvent themselves? The modern connected world has radically changed how brands grow and only those who understand it will survive. So it's time for an entirely new playbook. One that focuses on community, trust and integrity, where people are prioritized over profit and the winner isn't the one with the biggest bank account, but the one who cares the most. I believe purpose-led brands can change the world. So join me and the most innovative modern brand builders as I try to uncover their secret techniques and the principles that drove exponential growth and learn the stories about how they built some of the greatest brands of today. My name is Paul Archer and this is Building Brand Advocacy. My name is Paul Archer and I'm incredibly excited to be joined by Sasha Celestial One from Olio. Sasha, how's it going? Great, thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah, excited to have you on. Um, so I think let's just kick things off. What, uh, what is Olio uh, and, and what do you do there? How are you connected to it? So I'm the co-founder and COO of Olio, which is an app that we started seven years ago to connect neighbors and communities all around the world to share food and other household items. Basically anything that you have that still has value in it, but you no longer want, you can take a picture, put it on um, put it on Oleo, and it'll send an alert to people nearby who can um, browse and request um, your listings and then pop around and pick it up. So we're connecting people in real life to prevent things of value going to waste. Amazing. And how many people are you connecting? It's, 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 this isn't a small backyard project we're talking about here, is it? It is not any longer. No, we've got about 6 million people um, who have joined the app. Um, and about close to a million who are using it every month to share just over a million things with each other. And we've seen sharing take place successfully now in 62 different countries. That's fantastic. Um, and, you know, it's all about community, which we're, we'll certainly dig into in, in, in a bit. But I'd, I'd love to know the story. Like, how, how did it come about? Like, in fact, actually, before we go, tell me your story. You know, how did you come to be starting this business? Oh, goodness. Um, it's a long story because I'm middle-aged now, um, but um, a, a sort of whiz-through um, answer would be that Olio really is sort of coming full circle back to the values and experiences um, of my childhood. Um, I grew up in with hippie parents. Um, I'm the oldest of six kids, um, and we didn't have any money. And my mom was just an incredible scavenger collecting things, and that was my job as the eldest to assist her. Um, collecting things other people threw away and taking them home, fixing them up, reselling them, eating them, whatever. And I, um, I sort of always admired her hustle, but thought to myself, that's not what I want to do when I grow up. So I went in the exact opposite direction and pursued a really conservative financially secure um, career. I spent 13 years in investment banking, management consulting, um, business development roles at large corporates, which brought me to London. But when I was on maternity leave, um, I guess nine, 10 years ago, whenever it was, I just had that sort of cliched reckoning where I started to think about how I wanted to spend my time and more importantly, what type of world my child was going to inherit. And um, I think I started to tap back into all of that sort of hustling uh, spirit of my childhood um, and I decided to take a break from the professional world and, and become an entrepreneur. Um, 
I had another business before I started Olea, which was fantastic. I won't go into the details here, but it, that just really solidified my, that I felt like I was coming home to the right place. Um, but I wanted to do something a lot bigger than the small business I had started. And at that time, Tessa, who's my best friend and I met at business school and is um, um, the co-founder of Olio, um, she was at a similar crossroads in her life and we decided to team up and look for an environmental challenge that we could tackle at scale. Um, and during that sort of search process, she had a personal experience, which was the genesis um, for, you know, sort of the origin story for Olio. She was moving house and she had some food that she thought she'd be able to pack non-perishable food on moving day. And the removal people said, absolutely not, no food in the, in the boxes. And she wasn't just going to throw it away. So she went out on the street and tried to find someone to give her food away to, and she couldn't. And she ended up smuggling the food into her boxes anyway when they weren't looking. And that was just like the aha moment, because obviously um, there's no reason that food should have been left to go to waste. A mobile app can connect people in real time. Um, there's a sharing economy app for everything. Why not for food? And, th and that was back in February 2015. Amazing. And, and so, so what happened next? And you have the idea, and it, it's, a, it's a great idea, but how do you go out and make that a reality? Well, um, sounds simple when it, in hindsight, but it, it certainly wasn't 100% clear to us at the time. But as uh, moms with young children, we knew we didn't have time to waste. So we gave ourselves one year um, to get enough traction um, to basically justify not returning to the traditional workforce because we're both the primary breadwinners in our family as well. And that meant that we had a, sort of a real, um, you know, we're really working against the clock. So it was actually from naming Oleo to releasing the app store was five days or five months, not five days, five months to the day. Um, and during that time, we, I mean, there's so much that we had to do, but basically first we need to validate that this was a good idea. So we did a market research study, um, which is really a fancy name for, we did a survey monkey that we blasted into hundreds of Facebook groups and got people to fill out. But from that, we learned that 35% of people feel physical pain when they throw away food that um, is or recently was edible. And 90% of the people who filled it out said they'd be willing to walk um, 15 minutes or so to go collect fresh fruit and veg from a neighbor. And there are all kinds of positive indicators. So that was the first thing we did. But we've, you know, we of course know that what people say, what they do are very different. So the next was, thing we did was a proof of concept. Um, from the survey respondents, we identified 12 people who were really excited about Olea, who lived sort of within the same area um, and didn't know each other. And we got them to participate in a two-week proof of concept, which was simply a WhatsApp group. We put them in the WhatsApp group. We got 14 days, you know, take a picture of anything you don't want, put it, put it in the group and request it if you do. Um, the first thing that was shared was a bag of shallots, which is very Crouch End, if you know North London, which is where I'm sort of where Olio started. But we had 26 shares over 14 days. And um, when we debriefed with everyone, they said, this is amazing. Like, I love it. Um, I met people in my community. Um, and some of them I'm connected with on Facebook or Twitter, but I've like, never met in real life. So that we had sort of underestimated how satisfying that would be for people to meet people in their community. And they also said, it just doesn't need to be much more complicated than a WhatsApp group. And so that really helped us to strip back all of the sort of features that we had bloated into like our first version of the app and bring it right back to MVP. Um, and that meant that we could launch in July 
um, during the summer months, which is when there's an abundance of, you know, uh, gluts from allotments. And also people are just generally excited to be outside and it's a lot better time to launch a neighbor to neighbor sharing app than in February, for example. So, I mean, you, you said MVP there, like that minimal viable product. I mean, what you've just outlined there is one of the most robust uh, sort of adherences to the lean startup methodologies I think I've ever heard. I mean, the number of times that people start businesses and, you know, it's got to have all the bells and whistles straight away, but actually you started a WhatsApp group, no cost involved, nothing like that long before the app. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there anything that you learned from there that you wouldn't have done? Because the way that you did that sounded absolutely perfect. This is like stripped down as you possibly can be. So is, was there much that you were like, oh, okay, yeah, actually that was a terrible idea. We didn't need to do that. Well, um, the the thing with Olio is that the app is one part of it, right? But if no one's using your app, by definition, the app's useless. So what we had to do in parallel was to get people to pre-register to sign for the app so that once it was ready, we would have um, a user base. Because if I add something, I need someone nearby to request. So um, to be honest, we the app was probably 10% of our time and attention when we were launching, and 90% of our time and attention was um, standing on the street corner, taking email addresses and talking to people, harassing people as they walked by. Um, and we personally, or I personally, hand-delivered 10,000 letters um, to um, my neighbors all around me in North London. I, um, and we put up posters, um, you know, all over the place on, uh, on lampposts. Um, in terms of what we wouldn't have done, I'm trying to think back. I mean, there are so many different sort of cheap uh, guerrilla marketing tactics that we tried um, that, you know, just fell flat. Um, but it's, it, I think my, it's a bit like childbirth. Like I'm only remembering the things that worked. Um, so I can't think of anything off the top of my head that our general approach was that there was a certain number of hours in every day and we needed to do, and we had a long list of hypotheses in terms of what might help attract people, get people to sort of get people to pre-register. When we, when we launched, we had about 2,200 people who had signed up in the local area. So we could email them all to say, okay download the app now we're ready um yeah so that's not that's avoiding your question really <laughs> well the, the local area is is really interesting there so was it just in that 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 kind of crowd trend area that you focused in initially because yep. uh, i think the tendency a lot of people think to like to go as big as you possibly can go national go international but actually it's how narrow did you focus where where were the limits um, it was just a couple of postcodes, sort of like Finsbury Park to Muswell Hill, basically my house plus or minus a mile and a half on either side, um, which is sort of how far you could walk. <laughs> um, and we'd ha- we, what we did is you could, anyone could download the app, obviously, but you couldn't um, add something if it wasn't being added within that geographic area. We didn't mind if people wanted to come into that geographic area in order to request. But what we didn't want to do um, is sort of let anyone, we're worried about disappointing people who might add something in the middle of nowhere. And actually coming back to something that um, uh, we might have changed, to be honest, we thought we wouldn't, that, that increase in that geographic sort of area. We thought we need to get density within a particular area and then gradually increase it. But what happened was we got put on telly by the BBC about a month after we started. And we had just thousands of people downloading all over the country. 
paying really ready us to insist that they should be able to use Olio in their community. And that's actually the genesis for how we began to realize that we couldn't let, this was too important. Like we're solving, food waste is a massive contributor to the climate crisis. 70% um, of all food waste takes place in our homes. Meanwhile, 9 million people in the UK are going without enough to eat every single day. We, the world wasn't going to wait and shouldn't have to wait. So we decided actually that that original restriction that we'd put on geographic, we ended up lifting that within six months and let anyone anywhere pretty much in the world use Olio. Um, and um, we were, uh, we, I think that actually we could have done that sooner. Sooner, Your early adopters are so forgiving, um, you know, that they understand that if they want a sharing community to happen, that they're going to, it's not, it's not like instantaneous. They're going to need to take the initiative. So instead what we did is we lifted that restriction and we put a big button in the app that said not enough people or listings near you click here to help to figure out how to help grow Olio in your community. And we've had over 100,000 people now volunteer at Olio. And that's why we've seen food sharing take place all over the world, because we've equipped individuals to build their own network and go out and market and sign up, you know, market to their neighbors, sign people up, et cetera, et cetera, on our behalf. And that's, that's fantastic. I mean, so it's almost like, you know, you were growing so fast, the demand was there, you, you were artificially restricting it to a local area because that's the, is that because it's best practice, start at best practice, but actually by then turning it on, it was such a great product and idea that it would run on its own accord. Yeah. I mean, I think the right, um, I think artificially restricting it was unnecessary. And in hindsight, we didn't need to do that. Of course, focusing our supply and demand generation on an area in order to get enough liquidity to ensure that things that are added are being requested. Like, that definitely needed to be localized in the first instance. Um, also, we needed those proof points. Like we needed to understand like what the actual sort of dynamics of the marketplace were in a place where density wasn't a constraint. And so by building up the density in a particular area, we very quickly saw that three out of four listings are gonna get collected. And now I can tell you seven years on that 82% it is, but pretty much everywhere in the world, three out of four listings will get collected. Like it's just remarkable how consistent demand is. And I think that's because humans, um, like it just taps into something that's very primal. Like we've evolved to, um, you know, I don't wanna say hoard, but like we love free things. Um, we, we love getting a bargain, everything's for free on the app, but the sense of getting something for free is very satisfying. And also conversely, throwing things away that have value feels that feels really wrong. Like that's not how we evolve successfully, but giving something of value, especially nutritional value to another human is very satisfying. That's why we like to cook for each other and we celebrate um, in all cultures across the world with food. Sorry, that's a bit of a tangent there. Um, but um, once we knew what the liquidity of, of, of the marketplace was like, we needed that information so we could package that up and go out to investors and say, Look what we've done in in eight and in four. Imagine what this is how we would scale it and what the impact would be. Amazing, and I, I want to double click on the journey after with investors and and, and also the, the ambassadors who who allowed you to grow so quickly. But you know, there's the classic. I mean, it is a community, am I right? Oh, yeah. you know, it is effectively a community. Absolutely, fantastic. And and so there is the the rule of the internet. The was it one percent creators, ten percent curators, and ninety percent uh, lurkers or consumers yeah. might be a nicer way of describing it. Mm -hmm. um, 
does that run true for your community? Is it a bit different because people are giving? It would be fascinating to know. Um, it, it's interesting. So in the beginning, one in, like, if we look at the UK, sort of you had 20% adders, um, 50% requesters, and 30% who would do both. Um, but over time, it's now um, equal. One-third adders, one-third requesters, one-third who would do both. And it's just, um, um, I think people might arrive at Olio at a particular point in their life stage. Um, and then as their life evolves, they use Olio for different reasons. So when you're in a student, when you're a student, you're not giving a lot of things away. You're trying to get lots of things for free. Um, or, you know, but then other people might be moving house. And when they're moving house, they've got a massive amount of stuff they don't want to take with them to their new home. So then they are looking to to give away. So we're the nice thing is that we are, we, we attract people from one side of the marketplace, but over time they evolve into um, operating within both sides of the marketplace. Oh, brilliant. And as that kind of grew in those those those, those demographics, they started to find sort of the equal roles within it. Where were the hotspots? Where was it that, that this actually really took off? Um, well, in London, North and East London have just, are, are we just see really, really healthy, like healthy from a marketplace perspective um, behavior. And we see a um, just a very broad take up across all ages and groups and sort of socioeconomic um, segments. But generally what we like to say, and it is true because we've done a lot of research to back this up, trying to define who our customer is, that Olio is a mindset. Um, it's not a demographic. That said, about two thirds, maybe 70% of our users are female. Um, but that's if, you, that's if you look at, so who our current users are, but then if you look at who our future users are, our future users is more 50-50 gender split, but, but currently who we've, are, who we've attracted to Olio so far is much more female. Um, I mean, I, it's, it's, a, it's a hard question to answer because we, what we would see is small micro communities and by that, I mean like 100, 120 people popping up in Finland or Poland or just all over the place. Someone will see us on social. We've always had an incredible amount of press. Like we had, I think, 1,200 pieces of press last year. And the press is just, I think, love, um, love what we're doing because it is about community. It's about individual stories. It's about people like empowering people to solve their own problems within the community. It's, you know, there's so many different angles. It's a co female co-founded team. So we've been very privileged to have so much um, media attention. And that would then um, draw people from all over the world to download the app. And then they would, and again, they'd see that button that says, wish there were, you know, there was more people, there were more people near you. Click here to become a brand ambassador effectively. And um, we just, it's, it was, it's just felt random. Like you'd wake up one day and it'd be in Spain and then the next day it'd be in Italy. And it's just, we've seen take up all over the place. What would be the average journey for a brand ambassador who put that button to say they're in an Italian new market, they're in Spain and you've never done anything out there. Is it one individual can have that massive impact or do they bring others as ambassadors? Like how does that journey tend to work for someone who's a good ambassador? Um, so it's um, a 52 week journey. Um, and basically your, what you do in the, in the app now is you sort of claim that badge, that volunteering opportunity, and there's seven different volunteering opportunities. 
Um, and that's basically agreeing to be part of um, an email campaign. And the campaign provides you with a discrete set of asks um, for things that you do. Um, there are flyers that you can either um, request to be mailed to you, or you can print and download yourself. And there's a certain number that you're supposed to hand out. There are press releases you can customize to then share with like your local hyperlocal media. There's resource kits so that you could take to schools if you're a parent to start to talk to other parents, to your local authority. There's just a whole variety of sort of resources. And we put you on this self-directed um, pathway. Obviously, um, the power of, um, we also put all of the volunteers into a Facebook group together. So I've lost track, way lost track by now, how many people are in that Facebook group. It's a very active group where everyone's sort of taking selfies of themselves, handing out flyers and putting up posters. And um, they ask questions um, and, you know, answer questions that sort of are self, self-serving. Um, and then that, that pathway has like physical tasks um, with regard to sort of marketing in your area, but then there's also digital tasks. So it will be, you know, we will very clearly say, here's some sample copy, take this copy and WhatsApp 10 people. Here's some sample copy. You can send it, you can share this with um, your office, right? And so we basically give every, try and make it as effortless as possible for those individuals to um, spread the word. Because ultimately we just need more and more and more people to download the app. Once they download the app, then we put them through our own journey of getting them to share and request and engage and do all of the other things that we want them to do. And one, one individual can inspire hundreds of thousands, I presume, in some countries. Is that how this is worked? One person's picked it up and it's had that knock-on effect? Uh, I mean, we, there, are about, there are about a dozen individuals who have, I could say, in the tens of thousands, maybe not hundreds of thousands, of, <laughs> um, but who have just basically, of their own accord, become a pseudo-Oleo employee um, and sort of dedicated their lives to making oleo work um i can give you an example of a woman named ellis who's in jersey and for the longest time listings in jersey accounted for 25 percent of all of our listings because she dedicated her life to um, getting oleo up and running in jersey and it's not just all of the people that were there she got every single supermarket on the island to donate their food um, so that it could be collected by volunteers that are recruited through the Oleo app, a different type of the volunteer, not an ambassador. It's called Food Waste Hero. Um, and she oversaw, you know, hundreds of tons of food being, uh, you know, being eaten and, sorry, being rescued and shared on the app and then being eaten by thousands of families every week. Um, yeah, eventually we gave her a job. But it was like three years later. <laughs> and she, she worked for you still now? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, how do you... Actually, how do you manage that? So hundreds of thousands, hundred, almost 100,000 ambassadors, like how do you manage such a scale of people? And do you incentivize them in any way? Are they doing it out of the goodness of their own heart? How, how, how does that work? So half are um, food waste heroes and the other half are ambassadors. And for us, ambassadors are spreading the word. Um, and that is all, um, all just automated pathways um, in a push notification and email um, and um, it's, it's very, we don't do much. It's set up, we refresh it every now and then we look at the results and we, you know, sort of test and iterate, but that's about it. The food waste heroes are the supply side. So the ambassadors are building demand by spreading the word, but 
food waste heroes of supply. And that is a, I'm going to just let me explain how that works. So the food waste heroes are individuals who go through a food safety training program that we, on our, on our volunteer portals, we have a totally different part. We have a totally different interface for volunteers that you wouldn't see as a regular user of the app. Um, and then they can uh, sign up to collect unsold food at businesses um, at the end of the day, and then take that food home, share it on the app, and their neighbors come around to their house and pick it up. So this is happening um, 12,000 times a week that individual food waste heroes are collecting from Tesco, Pret-a-Manger, um, Planet Organic, Kentucky Fried Chicken, like we've got loads of partners. And those businesses pay us a fee every time the food is collected to ensure that food is redistributed to the local community rather than left to go to waste. So it brings supply in, and obviously for the, vol the volunteers are members of the community, and then it also, um, it's, it's all done, it's all neighbor to neighbor. It's very difficult to explain. I need to be, I need my elevator pitch. Long story short is, the Food Waste Heroes get to keep up to 10% of the food. And that is a strong motivator for many people um, who might be time rich, but maybe a little bit food budget poorer. But of course, lots of the volunteers don't keep any for themselves, and just the joy of you know getting to the tangible joy of getting to rescue food that you know was destined for the bin because it had a use by day of today so if you didn't collect it that's it it was going that's a really satisfying volunteering experience but then of course getting the opportunity to give that to people in your community and form those relationships that are often multi-year long friendships and you know go much deeper than simply providing food to someone else um that's also very rewarding and how we manage that is a very complex proprietary system that has taken years to develop. <laughs> there you go. That's with the IP list. Yeah, it is actually. <laughs> <laughs> and so those um, those individuals that you've, you've got going out there, are they ensuring it's going out to other users of the OEO app, or is it wider? It goes to food banks. It goes to um, people who aren't on the app as well. Um, it's meant so for transparency um, and traceability. We all the food needs to go through the app. But they do let um, their local food banks, community centers, um, we work really closely with the charitable sector. So not only do food banks use Oleo to give away food when they have too much that they actually haven't been able of a particular product, for example, that they haven't been able to give to local food bank recipients, they also conversely will may request because sometimes a food waste hero might get literally a car full of mushrooms, right? You know, just more mushrooms than you know which more mushrooms than your neighbors are going to request and so they have to be plugged into um the local charitable network as well so that they can alert them to request you know a pallet or whatever of mushrooms so it's quite it's it's it, it, it it's quite complicated because it's real-time hyper local highly perishable food yeah big big problems but amazing actually how it's it's grassroots solutions right individuals are the ones who are actually making this work and, and, and a lot of the volunteers, um, especially in locations that are super urban, um, will have a car and they would they will go and they might deliver a lot of that to a local charity or community center. Um, it's just that for traceability, it needs to all be sort of requested through the app. And so just thinking about the kind of the community as it's built and as it's grown, the, the ambassadors are the ones who are spreading the word to, to ensure that there's the demand side and, and the volunteers are the ones who are ensuring the supply side. 
what have you learned about the ways that communities grow? What, what are the really, what are the counterintuitives that you've discovered um, as the community has gone from a bunch of people in two postcodes and crouch ends to six million people downloading the app? Well, I think one of the key success factors, which is something we sort of learned, almost learned the hard way, um, is that there is this lowest common denominator effect. Um, and if the community feels like other people are get, breaking the rules and getting away with it, then they just don't feel, you'll, you'll start, everyone will start to sort of migrate to that. So for example, if people are keeping more than their 10% or taking more, you know, using different accounts to sign up to take more collection slots than they should be, or, you know, giving it to their housemates, like all of that kind of stuff, those, that, those bad actors, actually we are incredibly strict about um, acting upon and um, asking people, requiring people to step down from any volunteering if they don't follow our guidelines. Because quite quickly, one person behaving badly can piss off and demotivate dozens of volunteers in their immediate vicinity. Um, and so it's just, we, it's for us, we found that it's really important to act quickly and take, take those issues very seriously, especially also if you're dealing with food safety, which we are. Like we can't have people, we can't be, be lax about food safety. The other thing I would say is that the power of um, getting the community to self-police. So in order to scale, right? So this is an account managed service that we provide to businesses. And, and I, one account manager, when we started, used to be able to manage 100 collections a week because it was all just in a WhatsApp group. And they'd message and say, Paul, are you ready for your collection today? Six o'clock, Tesco Holloway, don't forget. And you'd have to wait for your reply, take it off the list. Now it's all, of course, automatic, magically, you know, works. And one account manager can manage between 1,000 and 2,000 collections a week. But a lot of the right way we've done that is by empowering the community to um, police each other. Um, and the power of social proof. So for example, if you've got all seven volunteers, one for each day of the week at a particular store location are put into a group chat that's just for them. Um, and of course our Olio's Little Helper bot pumps them and you know um, reports back how they've done. One of the things it'll do, it'll say, Paul, congratulations, you collected 17 items and shared with six people, right? And it'll list, post those people in, post those listings and who you shared with in and those people's profiles. And it does that every day. Now six, volunteers pick up 20, 30 list, 20, 30 items a week, but the seventh volunteer picks up two, right? That then the person who's going to go in the next day is going to say to the store manager, oh, it looks like there wasn't a collection yesterday. And obviously that store manager might say, validate that, right? Or they'll say, well, that's not true. And in that way, we've introduced all of these um, sort of interventions that, that, that the next day volunteer can then report the previous day volunteer. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is the community has made our job a lot easier and made us a lot more scalable because we've empowered them to enforce our rules. That's huge. I mean, that is just a, a magic way of getting to scale. Uh, one thing that, that we've experienced with Jewel with, with a lot of the brands that we work with is that their peer-to-peer communities on a Facebook group or a forum um, tend to sort of underrepresent the majority there is a small minority of very noisy um super fans 
you don't necessarily they don't actually end up wanting to be a big mouthpiece because there's a lot of opinions that go out for for, for, for good and for bad and, and everything is then then not, can be criticized and actually if that's the first thing that someone says it it has been a problem but how do you i mean it's there's a lot of people uh, there's going to be a lot of opinions and everything that you do as an organization i presume is highly scrutinized like how do you manage the cons of 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 so many people as a community well we have um a section in the app called the forum and um which is very active and we definitely have some super users and um and some very loud voices um and all throughout the the journey of using the forum, it's not just a free for all. Like anytime you post something, you have to pick which category it is in. And complaining is not a category. Like oleo love is a category, right? Um, <laughs> so we are already sort of it's all throughout the the sharing or posting in the forum process. You were repeatedly reminded and prompted um, about what is it, it what what is within our guidelines. And we have a zero tolerance policy on negativity. Like basically, we just take it down and we don't apologize for it because it's like you said, the loudest voices um, end up um, being heard the most. And if what they're saying is um, not representative or and too negative, it's just gonna, it gets us farther away from our mission. It's gonna turn people off. They're not gonna wanna share. Um, and like we feel that what we're doing is so important in terms of at scale, helping to mitigate the effects of the climate crisis, that keeping track of like our longer term vision and like making sure that Oleo is a welcome, friendly, mainstream place where anyone can come and not feel like they're gonna be attacked or harassed is way more important in the long-term and the short-term and core to our brand um, than freedom of speech. Like that's not what we're here for. Brilliant. I, I love that. And I think a lot of lot of brands and brand builders can learn from that. It's zero zero negativity is not hard to do. It's, it, and it's a nice rule to have. And I think these these communities always have, have to have rules. And are there any other rules that you have that are really core cool to it? Um, oh goodness. Um well we have a charter. We have quite a few different charters that we make people agree to at different stages in the process. Um so if you're requesting like you need to from a volunteer you have to acknowledge the charter that says like i recognize that this person is not an employee and that they have volunteered their own time i recognize that i am not entitled to anything that they have to offer like to just try and address um any preconceptions that might actually cause friction in between real people real humans who are giving up their time or maybe even people who are feeling vulnerable because they're in a, in a vulnerable situation personally or financially like that you are dealing it's quite an emotional thing right the um distribution of food um so by having different charters that we make people acknowledge and also we repeat throughout the process um we i'm trying to think of other guidelines i mean if you get sort of like two bad ratings in x number of days your account you're just done you just take off the app like so there's a whole bunch, I can't remember exactly what the logic is, but we have a lot of logic um, to remove people. If you're a no-show twice, you're done, account span, you know, stuff like that, to try and make, keep, to elevate it, the, the, the way in which we all treat each other, which is with respect, uh, we respect each other's time, and we also, um, under no circumstances, let good food go to waste. 
it, it sounds like the way that you've managed to achieve such an amazing scale is by being quite strict, actually, in a, in a, in a space that you could be quite flexible and, and actually that would be the wrong direction. Is that right? It is. And actually, um, you know, you, there's a lot of places you could give away your food or, um, you know, obviously, I'm, 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 it might not be clear from what I've said, but non-food, you know, anything you have, shampoo, bottle of perfume you don't like, books, toys, clothes, whatever. There's a lot of places you can give that stuff away. Um, but what differentiates Oleo are two things. One, um, sustainability and the environment are at the heart of what we do. That's It's baked into our sort of reason for being. And two, the level of um, like attitude and sort of disrespectful behavior that you will see on other platforms we don't tolerate and we are much stricter about. For example, no-shows. For example, pleases and thank yous. Um, so we're a lot stricter and I think that does differentiate us and that's why it's just nicer to give and receive on a whale. Amazing. And so that seems like a great jumping up point. It's not just food, is it? So, so where are you now? And, and, you know, we've, we've gone from crouch ends and then sort of exploding six months later, with all this amazing press, where are you now? It's not just food. Where's next? So we added non-food quite a while ago because, people were just using it for non-food anyway. And we were spending all of our time taking down, you know, shower heads and laundry detergent. Um, and we realized that our users sort of hate waste of all kinds. Um, and excess consumption is um, certainly a contributor to the climate crisis as well. Plus it's a purpose-built sharing app. So why wouldn't we make it more useful to more people? Um, and um, we, we also have a section which I think has huge potential, but it's still relatively new which is a borrow section. So things that you still want, you don't want to give away, but you don't use very frequently. So I have listed on there board games, um, tennis rackets, my air mattress, my disco lights. Um, they are listed and then neighbors can borrow them. I've specifically lent out my disco lights three times now um, to the hard rockers of, of Corruption and my air mattress a few times. And I'm, I'm quite excited by the idea that we have everything we need in our community already. Um, we don't all need to one click, same day deliver, you know, and I'm guilty of that too. Um, you know, something instantly when we need it, we can, if, we, if there's a way to efficiently and quickly ask our neighbors to help us out. We also have a wanted section. Um, the wanted section is gone gangbusters. So I just had a wanted message that popped up that said, um, your neighbor and mine set to half a kilometer. So it's only people who are like on my street, more or less, you know, is looking for a used tape dispenser, um, a hula hoop, um, seeds, house plants, you know, dog toys, cat toys. Um, and actually, um, it, there's something really voyeuristic about seeing what your neighbors are looking for. And then you don't even have to leave your house. You can say, oh my gosh, I've got a spare water bottle or whatever it is that they're looking for. So that's, that's really exciting as well. Yeah, yes. So if, if that idea of just seeing and experience, and I think community bringing people together is is really interesting. And, and so obviously, COVID would have made things hard for people to get together. But also, one of the, the results of COVID was the importance of community just suddenly became so much more apparent to, to I think everybody in, in every way. Like, how did that affect you? Um. I would agree that uh, the importance and value of community has been brought into sharp focus after spending so many months um, alone in our homes, um, just 
other humans in general, but the fact that we're sort of all in this together, experiencing life at the same time, and that within your immediate neighborhood, there might be people who are struggling and you're in a position to help. I think it's just a huge positive outcome, if there can be any, from the last two years. But it certainly wasn't clear at the beginning of the pandemic that a neighbor-to-neighbor app requiring people to meet in real time um, or meet in, you know, to meet to exchange was going to persist. And actually quite a few of the sharing platforms like FreeCycle, et cetera, a lot of them either shut down or restricted use um, quite considerably. Um, but what we did is we worked with our sort of food, we consulted with the government, we worked with our food safety advisors, and we just sort of reinvented our rules so that everything could be done um, um, in a safe way that was still compliant with like local government guidelines. Um, and actually what that meant is that we saw more sharing in the first five months of the pandemic than we saw in the first five years of Oleo. It was, it was exponential. It was really crazy. And that it just, we 5X'd basically in, in five months, which was really exciting, as you can imagine. And on the back of that, of course, momentum, we were able to go out and raise um, two rounds of financing actually during, we did a, our Series A follow-on and our Series B all in the pandemic. Wow. Um, and has that maintained? Um, yes, it has. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we saw it actually went up 6x and we came down one and then now we're sort of back up at like 8x or whatever. So <laughs> I mean, since since the end of 2019, we are 8x where we were. Now, of course, it's, I guess, nearly two and a half years. Um, so it's sort of lost. Uh, doesn't sound quite as impressive, but it has maintained. And we, um, you know, this is our Series B, we've always been very lean, resourceful is one of our three core values. We're in we're an anti-waste app. We don't waste <laughs> anything. Um, and we've always, and, and my co-founder and I have always done sort of all the group roles ourselves. So it's been a real delight as well as all the le- functional leadership roles. Um, and But what Series B has allowed us to do is to just properly invest in bringing in outside talent, people who have scaled um, global digital businesses before, um, and also invest in sort of core group functions like finance and admin and HR and legal and, and all of that stuff so that we can, you know, just sort of pr- professionalize a lot of the things that we've been doing, holding together with plasters and process. Yeah, you know, it's just been a mess, basically. And now we're getting through the mess part and everything's getting all nice and tidy and properly resourced. Um, and it's um, seven years on. It's also just for me personally, very rewarding to be in a different stage of the company. Um, that I've never experienced. So I'm also learning and feeling like it's day one again um, in some ways. Those growing pains that every business has. And, and what, what would you say? You maybe the teenage years or heading into maybe maybe freshers week kind of period of time? I, I think right now we are absolutely an adolescent. Um, so it's just like one arm's too long and one arm's too small and like everything just doesn't quite fit together and we're feeling a bit awkward um, as we sort of transition and mature. Um, and um, it, it, we're who we are and also we've also just, I haven't even touched on all these additional features and things that we've layered on over the years. And actually it's a bit of a Frankenstein now and we're in the, going through a process of going back to sort of first principles and asking ourselves, like, what are we doing? What is our vision? You know, what do we stand for? 
Um, and we're you know going to be stripping back some of the complexity that we've introduced into the user experience that's not core to what it is we're trying to do um, and trying to um, come out the other side um, something that is much more accessible um, sort of more mainstream and also I think just easier to inspire people to act because right now we've got like a million different motivations and we tell them all to you on day one um, and it's just it's quite a confusing user experience. That makes sense um, and everyone goes through that right that reduction phase and expansion mm -hmm. reduction and everything as you try and figure out what it is that's the, the most important thing and we've now learned you know your story from the past seven years of Odeo what's the story for the next five years? Well, um, we have a publicly stated ambition that we're going after um, and almost have a plan um, to get to 1 billion people on the app by the end of the decade in line with a variety of sort of climate um, goals and the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And um, our sort of way of doing that is very much through bringing our Food Waste Heroes program to, which is the program where Food Waste Heroes rescue food from businesses. Um, to, to different markets. And that's our su supply-led sort of market entry strategy because we've learned that demand follows. So we've now piloted and are scaling that program in Singapore and Mexico and Ireland and have pilots in place or starting soon in Spain, Buenos Aires, and Malaysia. And there's um, just really, really strong tailwinds which are forcing food businesses to radically address their food surplus in order to meet their net zero targets and they can't discount it all they can't they can't give it all away to charity like there is always going to be food left at the end of the day that should be feeding humans and that we are that collector of last resort that real-time redistribution tool and so we do see really strong demand for that business and also it's a very attractive business as in, in general um so we're really growing that part of part of the organization um, and just investing in business development teams and all of the different markets and um, working out the regulatory uh, considerations. They're, it's a very regulated food safety, volunteer versus employee, like there's lots and lots of complexity. Um, and so just getting ourselves set up to scale that internationally. That sounds so exciting. And so a lot of the people who listen to this are brand builders. Um, they, they are generally working at consumer brands, retail brands, mm. marketing, selling stuff. I mean, you're lucky enough to have this, this business, which is, is literally saving the world, I think, in, in, in one of those ways. But, but everybody, not everybody can have that opportunity. Yeah. But, but how would you recommend that people who are working for maybe not quite so net positive businesses to be at least net neutral or to sort of assuage their, their guilt or any, any kind of thoughts of people who are working in that space? Um, for people who are working in spaces where they might not necessarily feel, get that sort of like satisfaction, they know they're solving a really important real world problem. Well, I mean, I, I think just as important as the problem we're solving is like the team and the culture that we're building at Oleo. So, you know, when I think about like what gets me out of bed every day, yes, I'm motivated by the problem we're solving, but it's also the hundred people and the that work on our team and their personal development and their mental well-being and their um, the the giving 
giving them a challenging yet flexible way of working so they can live their fullest life. And therefore their partners and their children can all benefit from that because maybe they got more or less time with um, husband or wife or mom or dad. So I think even if you're not, you know, just mind blown by the impact the product or service your marketing or selling has, I think you can get really motivated by the team or culture that you're building. Love that answer. And, and it's something I personally have, uh, have experienced on one side of it. We used to have some planet-related parts of the mission that we do at Jewel, and, and actually we got rid of it because it felt disingenuous. Like, but the thing that is the most important thing to what we do is the people. It's it, it's the people that we work with, the brand builders we work with, and it's the people who work at Jewel, making sure that their experience is is the most remarkable it possibly can be so that you do grow and you get better and, and actually if you take care of the people they will then take care of the planet and so it is, it's a massive knock-on effect i agree absolutely and also like i think it's unrealistic to think that we can all work all of our career full careers on um and i feel really lucky to be working on the problem we're solving oleo but i it's still i've spent the vast majority of my career like selling credit cards or helping pharmaceutical companies like sell more drugs and doing all kinds of things I'm not necessarily proud of. But if I hadn't had those foundational years learning project management as a consultant and finance and banking, you know, all of those skills and tools have equipped me now to uh, bring my, you know, to, 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 I guess, contribute at Olio. And if I had to have part of that journey, I don't think I would be able to have brought Olio with my co-founder to where it is today if I didn't have all those other real world skills and experiences that I developed in less sort of sexy or impactful areas. I love that approach as well. And thinking of that in terms of actually that everyone who is is working for brands, um, what is it that they can do to actually help solve this problem you know they're, they're producing things often selling things in the in the material world but is there a way that they can encourage it to be recycled to be used sold whatever multiple times that you'd recommend i mean i just yeah once you start to look at like everything that comes into your possession um as sort of your responsibility um, it is the way you think about and sort of assess your impact on you in your environment. Um, it just starts to change. Um, and I think there's a mindset shift to become a bit more attached and observant and, and responsible for all of the possessions that pass through. Um, and every possession is going to have, there's going to be a different answer. Like, and sometimes the answer, if you, there's a, there's a zero waste, a high, like hierarchy that's made sort of famous by Bay Johnson. Um, and because a lot of people think of recycle as um, a solution, but actually recycling is like the last thing you should possibly be doing. Actually, at the top of the pyramid is um, refuse, right? Like just start by not letting things come into your sphere of possession that you don't need. Don't take a plastic fork, right? Don't take spare napkins. Don't take a coffee lid. Don't, you know, don't take the free toiletries at a hotel because I'll tell you what, they're just going to replace them. So <laughs> having less, buying less in general and having less stuff in your life <laughs> that you're responsible for is really a good place to start professionally and personally. Um, and then when something is within your possession, like really asking yourself, have I ensured that the full value of this item 
is, is realized. And sometimes that might be selling something on, giving something away, sharing it on Olio, um, you know, whatever. Like there's going to be a different answer for everything, but starting to think about all of the stuff as doing that mental calculus to optimize for the full value, that is what we all have to do at scale. Because what's happening is that come July, every single year, and the date is moving forward, we reach what's called Earth Overshoot Day. And that's the day in the year collectively as human humans, we um, have all the resources we've used up until that day can be replenished, but all the resources used after that day are net depletive. And when we first started tracking this back in the late 70s, we were in balance, like the earth was in equilibrium. The resources we used collectively, the date was December 31st because all of those resources could be replenished. And we're, it's just getting closer to January, which is, doesn't take a mathematician to figure out what that means. And um, the, the just endless, rampant, unnecessary consumption that so easy to fall victim to is, is at the heart. 60% of all carbon emissions are directly related to consumption choices we make in our own home. It's these tiny little things that just add up at scale. So that's my, there's my rant, um, but it really, look, obviously regulatory change is important and, and industry and system and all of that stuff's really important. But in the meantime, we have to take personal responsibility for the two or 300 micro decisions we make every single day about the stuff in our sphere, in our sphere of influence. That's amazing. And I don't I think we could end it any better than that. So this has just been so fantastic. Sasha, this has been uh, an inspirational and really informative chat as well. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, thanks a lot for, for coming on board. Thank you so much for having me. I'll see you later. See you soon. So that was Building Brand Advocacy. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed making it. Now, we are obviously all about advocacy, so if you enjoyed that, please do tell a friend and share that episode or even share this, the show. And if you haven't subscribed, please do subscribe. Um, if you know anyone who you think would be great and you'd love to hear more about, like, please do get in touch and recommend them. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Paul Archer or email me paul at jewel.tech um, and we'll reach out and try and help there. And in the meantime, stay tuned for the next one.